from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. Generally, if you are out in a public place, um, someone does not need consent to take your photograph. Um, That would be consistent with the First Amendment. One, One thing that is a little concerning about their policy, though, is that they do suggest that media is subject to to different treatment. I took a look at their policy online. If journalists wanted to take photos, that they needed to reach out to the Metro Communications Department first. I think there would certainly be an argument that in singling out journalists, that that is a speaker-based distinction that sort of reflects a content preference, a desire to censor. I'm Sarah Fenske. Two weekends ago, a St. Louis public school teacher named Tony Nypert got off a Metrolink train at the Central West End Station. One of Tony's hobbies is exploring different areas of the city. He also writes for the local blog Next STL. He was working on a piece about how Metrolink is safer than many people think. Well, as Tony stepped off the train by Barnes Jewish Hospital, he was on the hunt for a photo to use in his blog post. Right as I got off uh, at the station, I like turned around, snapped a picture with, you know, the train in the background. Uh, nobody said anything. And then I was like, well, the station looks so good. I loved how, like, the building kind of rise up out of the station. So I kind of got back at a distance. And at this point, nobody's on the platform. It's kind of kind of empty, uh, except for the two security guards. Um, and I... Um, kind of take a big um, landscape photo of it and probably like two seconds after I take that photo she yelled at me like hey she said who are you taking a photo of and I said oh I'm taking it of the platform and I like gestured that I was trying to do that Um, and she said you can't do that and so you know I didn't know the, the rules I thought maybe I was in the wrong so I apologized and walked off. Now, Tony Nypert was quick to tell our producer that it wasn't a big deal, but he was surprised Metro Transit wouldn't want people taking positive photos of the transit system. So that was one of the weird things. And, and I thought to myself, maybe maybe they've got some rules about, you know, like um, customer privacy or something. And, and so there's, there's a worry about, you know, that if, if somebody's in a picture and they didn't want to be in a picture, um, even though the station was pretty much clear except for the, safe, uh, the security yards. But... Um, yeah, I mean, it, it is kind of weird that that this is supposed to be, you know, the commons and, and it's not being treated as such um, by the people who are operating it. So what is Metrolink policy and what does the Constitution say about all that? We got to wondering about the little picture and the big one and a whole lot of other questions about photography and the First Amendment in this digital age. And joining us now to talk about just that is Lisa Hoppenjans. She's an assistant professor of practice and director of the First Amendment Clinic at Washington University School of Law. Lisa, welcome. Thank you, Sarah. I'm happy to be here. So, Lisa, Tony Nypert was taking a picture of just how good the Metrolink station looked. Can they stop him from doing that? Well, as a general rule, photography and filming are protected by the First Amendment. And in particular, if you are in a public place, you generally have a right to take photographs of things that are plainly visible. Um, so here on the, the government-controlled metro, on the metro platform, this is a public place. Uh, it sounds like what he was photographing was clearly visible. And so 
as a general rule, the First Amendment would protect that. Now, uh, there can be what are sometimes referred to as reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions. Uh, So there could be some types of content-neutral rules that a government agency could put in place that would be acceptable, that may limit, for example, on the Metro platform. It would make sense if there was a rule against tripods. Um, but simply having an individual, you know, take a few photos in, in a non-obtrusive, non-obstructive way, uh, it, it certainly is questionable that he was asked to stop that. So uh, we're going to dig into Metro Transit policy in just a moment here. But first, I want to get one big question out of the way. Tony made a big point of saying, look, this story was positive. He ended up publishing that story. It was positive. You know, the photo looked great. But say he'd found like a lot of trash um, at that Metro Link station. Say the story wasn't positive. Would that make a difference? as far as his First Amendment rights go? No, absolutely not. I mean, the law is clear that the government can't restrict your ability to engage in speech because uh, that they don't like the viewpoint that you might express. So if they were stopping him from taking a picture, for example, uh, because they thought it was going to portray Metro in a negative light, but they were allowing people to take photos if they thought they were going to portray Metro in a positive light, that would even be a bigger problem. Hmm. So we did get a statement from Talby Roach. He's the president and CEO of Bi-State Development, which runs uh, Metrolink. I'm going to read this statement here. Uh, Quote, at Metro Transit, our top priority is to move people safely. So our photo and video rules are designed to keep everyone safe by reducing preventable accidents and injuries to our riders, our team members, and the members of the media or production companies that we are accommodating on the transit system. We don't want anyone to accidentally get knocked down or off a Metrolink platform while trying to avoid a camera crew or trying to attract the attention of a reporter. Technology is changing at lightning speed, and many of our riders have cell phones with good quality cameras. We encourage them to take pictures and videos of themselves having fun on transit, including selfies, their families taking transit to a sporting event, concert or parade, and a photo of a beautiful sunset or or sunrise while they are waiting for a bus or Metrolink or on a bus or train. However, we ask everyone to be respectful that not all of their fellow riders may want their photos taken and to remember not to create a safety hazard by interfering with or blocking pedestrian traffic. And Talby Roach continues, quote, our security team members are trying to keep everyone safe. And although they are trained about the photo and video rules, they do get confused on occasion. And for that, we apologize. So it sounds like under the terms of their policy, maybe not necessarily in this practice, but under policy, Tony did have the right to do what he was doing. And and as you're saying, that's something the First Amendment would want him to have. Yeah, that's correct. Um, So, you know, the policy as described there in terms of generally allowing the photography with exceptions that may relate to to safety, um, that would be consistent with the First Amendment. One, One thing that is a little concerning about their policy, though, is that they do suggest that media is subject to to different treatment. I took a look at their policy online Um, which suggested that if journalists wanted to take photos, that they needed to reach out to the Metro Communications Department first, Um, which which that would make sense in the case if it was a tripod or, again, some kind of large setup that may be obstructive. But a a policy that singles out journalists and treats them differently than sort of anyone else who could take a photo with the same type of equipment with a cell phone camera like we all have, that is concerning uh, because under the law, the courts will look very skeptically at restrictions that vary based on the content of the speech. And one way that a restriction can be considered content-based is if it differentiates between speakers in a way that suggests um, that it's really reflecting a content preference. Um, So if the 
Metro is restricting journalists, um, but not individuals who might be using the same equipment like a cell phone camera, by singling them out, that does suggest that there might be a speaker-based distinction that reflects a content-based preference, which is to potentially try to control the messages that the journalists may be sharing. And that raises a concern. So, yeah, I mean, you're right. This is exactly what their policy says. It says journalists, photographers, and videographers who wish to take photos, film, or video for commercial slash professional use must first contact the Metro Communications Department for approval. And that is regardless of whether they're using a tripod. We heard from Robert Cohen, who is a great photojournalist at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. He's been a guest on this show. He writes on Twitter, quote, this has been an issue on STL Metro for years. In one breath, they ask riders to post their photos, and there Robert links to a Twitter post where they're literally asking people to hashtag uh, stay toasty on transit, and he continues, in the other breath, you need permission and an escort. Makes zero sense. So it sounds like this is a policy that, that they are trying to enforce with some local journalists. Lisa, let's say that some journalists decided to sue over this. Obviously, journalists have a lot of possible things to sue over. Who knows if people would want to put resources into this? Do you think they could have a case challenging that policy? Well, I, I think there would certainly be a, an argument that in singling out journalists, that that is a speaker-based distinction that sort of reflects a content preference, a desire to censorship. This is actually um, not an exact issue, but a similar issue like this came up recently uh, in a challenge in a Texas federal court that related to a statute that restricted the use of drone photography in Texas. And there were a number of different provisions of that statute that were challenged by the National Press Photographers Association. But one of the bases for that challenge was that the statute uh, had general prohibitions on the use of drone photography for what they called surveillance. There was a question about really what surveillance meant and whether that was unconstitutionally uh, overbroad and vague. But another part of the challenge was that the statute exempted certain types of uses of drone photography. So for example, if you were using it for, for scholarly research or commercial purposes, um, but it didn't exempt news gathering use. Mm -hmm. And at the motion to dismiss stage, the, the federal district court determined that the Photographers Association had stated a, a plausible claim for a First Amendment violation based on the fact that the statute actually distinguished between different types of speakers. And because that operated as a really a content-based preference, the court said that the law would be subject to strict scrutiny, which is the highest level of scrutiny that a court would subject a law to, and that the plaintiffs had at least at that stage made out a plausible case that the law wouldn't survive that level of scrutiny because of this content-based, uh, speaker-based distinction. Mm, and this is all so interesting. So you mentioned the National Press Photographers Association. Well, our producer, Evie Hemphill, spoke this morning with Mickey Ostriker. He's the general counsel there. And he talked to her about a policy at Amtrak that may have echoes of the policy at Metrolink. He talked to her about how he was able to get Amtrak to change its policy. And a lot of that came as a result of there were train hobbyists who loved to take pictures of trains and train stations, and they were constantly being hassled uh, by Amtrak police, being told they couldn't do that. As a matter of fact, it became so absurd that Amtrak had had a photo contest, and, and there was one case where somebody was taking a photograph in, in Union Station in Washington, and in the middle of that, somebody came up to them and said, no, you can't take any pictures here, uh, and it's like, but I'm taking these for your contest, and it, it didn't matter. So oftentimes, the people 
you know, that are out there. Um, the police, uh, the security guards, others don't really even know what the rules are. And that is Mickey Ostriker. He's the general counsel of the National Press Photographers Association. So thinking about all these different policies, Lisa, um, something that Talby Roach mentioned in his statement um, about how Metrolink is trying to balance various concerns is that they don't want people to feel like they're being bothered while they're on the train. So here's a hypothetical. Let's say that I'm like an extremely attractive person and I'm just hanging out on the metro trying to get to work and somebody comes and and is taking a picture of me. And that makes me feel creepy. Is that something where Metrolink would have good cause and, and be able to deal with this under the, the First Amendment to stop that person from taking my picture? Well, g- generally, if you are out in a public place, um, you know, someone does not need consent to take your photograph. Um, there have been you know, attempts to to limit the ability to photograph individuals in public. For example, if someone is doing it in a way that is intended to intimidate, um, there are some laws that have tried to get at this by talking about intent to harass, and these have been subject to different types of challenges in court. But if you are in a public place, uh, generally you you don't have a right to uh, not be photographed. Hmm. Well, I think that might come as a shock to some people. I think you'd hear a lot of people who might try to contact Metro Transit Security if if they feel like somebody's taking their picture. But that's a First Amendment protection there uh, in in the same way that maybe we want to give journalists preference. An average person also benefits from that. Right. And and to be clear, I mean, the the law also doesn't say there has to be a journalist preference, right? It's that the the law needs to to treat... uh, folks neutrally, essentially. And that what, what one problem with Metro's policy is, is that it singles out journalists in a different way. We're talking today to Lisa Hoppenjan. She's an assistant professor of practice and director of the First Amendment Clinic at Washington University School of Law. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation with Lisa. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. And now back to our conversation. We're talking today to Lisa Hoppenjans. She's an assistant professor of practice and director of the First Amendment Clinic at Washington University School of Law, talking about this fascinating intersection, the First Amendment and, and how it protects photography, but how people sometimes uh, have different policies when it, it comes to all these things. Um, our producer, Evie Hemphill, spoke this morning with Mickey Ostriker. Again, he's the general counselor of the National Press Photographers Association. And she asked him whether this is a big issue for his members these days. We are dealing with this around the country all the time. It's not only uh, accessed by, by the government, but, you know, there are people now, unfortunately, that think that they have some reasonable expectation of privacy when they're in a public place. And I can't tell you how many times we hear from our members 
that, you know, people at demonstrations, when they're out there protesting where part of it is being seen and heard, um, they tell people, you can't take my picture, uh, at which point I say, well, you know, tell them to look up at, you know, up in the air or on the walls of the buildings, and you'll see all these cameras. And we're photographed and recorded, you know, scores of times a day, because basically, in this country, there's no reasonable expectation of privacy in a public place. And while there's certain uh, time, place, and manner restrictions that apply to those First Amendment rights, you know, short of that, that's basically the, the rule of thumb. And that, again, is Mickey Ostriker, the general counsel of the National Press Photographers Association. Lisa, I got to admit, when I was a newspaper editor, I did hear frequently from people who had had their picture taken when they were out and about, maybe even posed for it. They wanted that photo taken off our website and were often shocked when we did not comply with this. Is this something where the public's understanding of what the rules of the game are are maybe different than what the Constitution actually says? Well, I, I think it is. I mean, I think that's absolutely right. You know, folks generally, you know, don't think that um, they're susceptible to having their their image just placed out there without their consent. Now, there certainly are restrictions on what someone could do with an image. If you take a photo of a stranger, you know, you you can't go use it in an advertisement without their consent, for example. But if you're using it in the context of news reporting or a similar type of use, then that is generally going to be protected. We also heard from Teresa. She's an American now living in Germany. She writes on Twitter, quote, Photo snapping has been a point of reverse culture shock for me. People just don't freely take photos in Germany. Even with friends, you ask first, almost always with the clarification that it's for personal documentation only. No posting. In some ways, Lisa, is is this a cultural thing? America maybe has different rules about this than other places. Well, that may be the case, and certainly I imagine that the sort of strong First Amendment protection for the right to do this may sort of have played a role in the development of that culture. Okay, yeah. I mean, different rules in different places. So we've heard from a number of, uh, of people with different examples. Here's one that really fascinated me. Bridget wrote on Twitter, quote, I took a pic at a Denny's in a hotel one night. I was amazed at the party, and I got kicked out. Would that be Denny's right to kick Bridget out if she took a picture of guests having a good time? Well, it, you know, it could be. I mean, if you're on private property uh, and, and you, know, you don't have a right to be in a Denny's, uh, and Denny's does have the right to restrict activity. So if you're in a, a private place and you take a photo, they, they can't ask you to not take photos or they can ask you to leave because you would be considered to be trespassing if you remain after you're asked to leave. And so the difference of, of location where you're at, this is critical here, something like a government building, if you're inside the government building, does that count as a public place? So the, the rules on government buildings um, are really interesting and, and not quite all sussed out in, in, in terms of where the rules and where the law lies. It's certainly clear that if you are outside of a government building and you're in a, pub, you know, in a public location, that you can take photos of, of the exterior of a government facility. Um, there was actually a, a, a 2010 case that uh, involved an individual who was arrested while they were filming in a public plaza outside of a federal courthouse. I think it was in New York. Um, that case settled, but as part of the settlement, uh, the government agency that provides protection for a large range of federal buildings, the Federal Protective Service, uh, agreed that it would instruct its officers that the public has a general right to photograph the exterior of federal courthouses from publicly accessible places, 
And it also agreed that certain regulations that, that it applied for its security services would not be interpreted to prohibit the photography, again, from publicly accessible spaces um, of the exterior of buildings. The agency actually updated an order in 2018, and they did address the, the issue of interior photography just a little bit. They did say that they would interpret the rules, that the rules allowed uh, an individual to photograph sort of interior building entrances and publicly accessible lobbies of a federal facility for news purposes. So kind of the main area when you first walk in the building, but a different rule might apply if you go into a specific government office that is on a particular floor of that building. Um, it, it, I, I'm not aware uh, of challenges in this context, but again, the rules do vary once you get inside. It's very clear uh, that you can't just go into a, a courtroom and begin filming. Uh, on the other hand, if you're outside on a public sidewalk, you can take a picture of the courthouse. So here's a, well, I guess this is not a hypothetical. Here's an example that is kind of like falls neatly between those two. You know, federal courthouses, they don't allow any cameras inside. This is a longstanding prohibition there. And as you said, you could take a photo of the exterior of the courthouse. Well, Doyle, who's a, a local journalist, he writes on Twitter, if you have a camera on the steps or upper platform leading to the federal courthouse in St. Louis, court officers will come out to usher you onto the sidewalk. Can they control the steps. I know we're getting deep in the weeds here, Lisa. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, I, I would consider that area outside the courthouse to be a, a public plaza, just like the, t- the sort of area that the government at least agreed in this 2010 settlement that it wouldn't enforce any nationwide rules that would prohibit photography there. Uh, you know, it could be that if there's a particular safety issue about being on the steps as opposed to the, the flat part of the plaza, there there might be, that could potentially be a reasonable, uh, you know, manner restriction. But the, the wide public area there, I think that is an area that should be fair game and protected for individuals to use to take photographs of the exterior of the building. Hmm. Well, I think many journalists would tell you uh, the federal marshals or the people working around those that courthouse, those are not people that you necessarily want to push back on in the moment. That might be one where you'd want to engage a lawyer to fight. But it's been interesting hearing from people with their different examples around town. How many times journalists have been able to just make happen what they need to make happen just by pushing back a little bit? Uh, Blythe, who's a journalist, said that she was told to desist, uh, quote, while taking photos from the sidewalk of an illegal demolition, no water, that spewed dust clouds over the Grove neighborhood. Well, she told us that uh, she told the worker who was telling her she couldn't do this that she was there as a reporter. The public sidewalk is fair game, and the worker ended up going back to work and let her keep doing what she was doing. Uh, Frank emails, I was getting some establishing shots outside Belleville Memorial Hospital. This was while he was working in TV news, and I was told by their aggressive security staff that I was not allowed to do that. I pointed out that I was on a public thoroughfare, not private property. He said that didn't matter. So I told him to call the police and report me, and I would wait for them to arrive. He didn't, of course, but it appeared that nobody had called his bluff before. Sometimes it works to do that. Now, here's a a trickier situation. Uh, Stephanie does work with the St. Louis Audubon Society, and she emailed to say that the society has been studying bird deaths due to birds hitting glass in buildings 
buildings around town. Their recent research is focused on downtown buildings during migration periods. Uh, Volunteers walk around three times a week in the early morning looking for dead birds. And when they find one, they take notes and gather data. But Stephanie writes, quote, when a volunteer tried to take a picture of the Bank of America building in downtown St. Louis, security guards came running out to stop them, claiming they are not allowed to take pictures. Stephanie told us the Audubon folks have tried to push back, but to no avail. She adds, quote, it's very frustrating because you can go to Google and see pictures of the building, and they can't stop people walking on the street from randomly taking pictures. But the Audubon Society doesn't want volunteers to get in some kind of trouble, so we are missing data points from this location. That seems like a really good cause, Lisa, and yet just kind of politely pushing back isn't working here. What would you say about this situation that Stephanie presents? Well, you know, if, if the volunteers are located in, again, a, a public space, as long as they're not on the bank's private property when they're taking these photographs, they would certainly have a right to be there. Um, now, here, it, it's less of a First Amendment issue because, as you're describing it, there's, there's private security guards who are simply telling them they can't do this, as opposed to the government coming in and subjecting them to some type of arrest um, or the, the private company suing them under some cause of action. Um, so, but I think that, you know, they are within their rights to, to stand their ground and explain that when they are located on public property, that they do have a right to take photos of this plainly visible building. So when we talk about the government cracking down on these things and how that's really uh, what flies in the face of the First Amendment here, again, Mickey Ostriker, he's with the National Press Photographers Association. He does a lot of training with both journalists and police departments. Well, in 2014, he talked to police about journalists who were documenting the unrest that followed Mike Brown's killing in Ferguson. And initially, police wanted Mickey to tell journalists about what they considered a, quote, 10-second rule. If somebody stands still uh, for uh, more than 10 seconds, and most photographers usually stand still to take pictures, we can arrest them. They have to keep moving. And I said, I, I don't think that that's going to withstand constitutional muster. And, and it didn't. Um, and, and fortunately, you know, we had things um, in place, and it, it really took the court intervention uh, to get the police to stop interfering with with journalists, um, but even even after that, they they continued to do it. And again, it costs taxpayers a lot of money to settle the federal civil rights lawsuits that came as a result of some of these arrests. And that is Mickey Ostriker of the National Press Photographers Association. Lisa, I know you've represented some journalists having to deal with overzealous law enforcement. Um, is this mainly a matter of them needing education, or is this sometimes you got to fight fire with fire? Well, I, I think certainly there is a need for education. And, and I do think that with sort of the increased use of, of not just by journalists, but also, you know, protesters themselves are using live streaming and other techniques as sort of an accountability mechanism. I mean, I do believe that law enforcement, in part because of a number of these recent lawsuits that that have been filed against them in St. Louis and in other places, that that law law enforcement agencies are becoming more aware of this issue. And some agencies are affirmatively instructing their officers about the public's right to record the officers if they're, you know, doing so from a public place while the officers are performing their duties and if they're doing it in a way that it's not interfering with the officer. 
So I'm curious how case law is evolving on this. And I should warn you, we only have just about a minute left. But but are there any developments coming along on this? And in what way is the law moving? Is it becoming more open to people being able to uh, to exercise these rights? Well, certainly when it comes to the issue of recording police officers, um, there's six federal appellate courts that have directly addressed the question, and they've all said that there's a qualified right to record police officers who are performing their duties in public. Um, This issue has been presented in a case before the Tenth Circuit right now, and the Justice Department has actually weighed in with a brief in that case uh, asking the Tenth Circuit to also join those courts and recognize that there is a right to record police when they're performing their duties. The Civil Rights Division talks about how this is an important accountability tool. So I I do certainly think that the law on that particular area is moving in the direction of greater recognition of that right. Boy, well, that is great to hear. Um, Lisa Hoppenjans, this has all been so interesting. You must must just have the most interesting job getting to deal with all these issues. Is is this something that uh, uh, you get some joy out of? I, I, I definitely. I'm, I'm very lucky. I enjoy our matters and I enjoy the students who help me work on them. Well, Lisa Hoppenjans, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Sarah. This episode was produced by Evie Hemphill with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.